Hello, creeps. I'll be your ghost. I mean, host. As we delve the crypts of spooky movies and even spookier theory. Welcome to Horror Vanguard. Okay, I'm recording. Are you recording? I am recording. I'm recording. We were get- oh. we were getting so cocky. We were getting so cocky that we we were like, no, we're we're through the problems, through the dark energy, the 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 cursed vibes of the Black Lodge. But no, nope. Right here, right here at the end, we got we got too confident. We didn't open the letter of podcaster instructions. Uh, until the very end, and we were shot by an off-screen assailant. Uh, <laughs> hello, hello, everybody. We are, we are, we are struggling. We are, we are, we are, we are here at the very end of our season one retrospective of Twin Peaks. My somehow name. we've made it. <laughs> somehow we've made it. We've made it through the first seven episodes. We now just have the twenty-two episode second season <laughs> still to come. Oh, we thought we we thought we had accomplished something here with wrapping season one of our Twin Peaks retrospective, but then season two looms on the horizon, infinitely larger and more complex than we could have ever imagined. It's we are gonna have a great we're gonna have a great time with it in the in in twenty twenty three. We are gonna dive into the madness that is the second season of Twin Peaks. But let us let us let us bow out of season one with this episode on episode seven the last evening um and and ash i know i know we may have this may feel like deja vu but i know (laughs) that you have a formal point that you would like to make yeah so i think we we talked about this in some of the first episodes of the twin peaks retrospective but um, depending on the edition of the DVD or the Blu-ray that you have of Twin Peaks, or if you saw it as a live broadcast on television or a rerun, you might have seen the fact that every episode starts with the log lady reading a little pricey, if I can be so self-aggrandizing as to connect us in such a manner. Um, <laughs> but like, it almost feels like I've said this before, like I've been here. It's deja vu again, Twin Peaks. But what I find really interesting about the final closing uh, pricey from the log lady is that she says questions uh, can never be answered at the wrong moment. And I think this is so we know that David Lynch is very fascinated with Eastern philosophy and Eastern thought. Right. And, you know, like this, this connects with that really strongly. Right. Like there things could never have been a way that they things could never have been different than they are now, right? To, to, to try and suss out a different way things could have been leads you to false conclusions, right? Things are the way they are, and we have to act from that standpoint. But I think we can also look at that, that kind of question, that statement from the log lady from a materialistic perspective, right? Questions can never be answered at the wrong moment. You know, we, we require the right series of social events, material technologies, relationships, connections, self-growth, understanding. So much is required to answer a question, and all of that stuff is preliminary work. It must be completed before the question can be answered. And I, I think it's very tempting to read that from kind of a moralizing perspective. You know, like, like, oh, questions can never be answered until the right moment. The right moment being assigned this category of goodness, 
but if we kind of let go of that simplistic moralizing and kind of embrace the the like i don't know like the the plane of potential that the log lighting set is setting us up for well how do we arrive at the right moment we arrive at the right moment by making it by by seeking it by by becoming ready for it and this is this is what is happening in this final episode of twin peaks it's a it's a becoming ready for the conclusions that will appear and start to grow in season two. Yeah, like, what is knowledge? That's really been the big question, right? Knowledge is always that which is yet to arrive. And, like, right yeah. right here, this episode this episode is great. Um, I, I, I don't know if we've stressed that enough in this first season, but this first season is an almost, like, perfect run of television. Like, I'm I'm just I'm gonna put my 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 color I'm nailing my colors to the mast here like in terms of like story architecture theme mythology mm-hmm. like atmosphere and like so many characters kind of finally meet the higher point of their story at the exact same time and it's so perfectly done and it's like all of it resolves but never resolves so completely that it uh, that you eliminate all questions. Right, nothing ever gets tied up neatly. All you do is you resolve, but you resolve dialectically into a higher phase of questioning. Absolutely. And this is this is like this is something I love so much. And I know like this is not we, we shouldn't just call Twin Peaks a David Lynch thing. Because it's it's Mark Frost and so many other people working on this show. But this is something that I, I love so much about the media that David Lynch is part of the production of it's it's this kind of dialectic motion there's no such thing as an answer there there are there are only more refined questions and and that process is eternal you you could know everything you could live forever and that would only if done properly produce further questions yeah absolutely absolutely because existence is this constant state of wonder and surprise and that's this this is this is the very this is the alchemical process of living this is the thing that resists entropy is human creativity, is this process of questioning. It's the thing that cannot run out, the thing that of its very own construction will never end. It's the perpetual motion machine, and we're watching it in action here in Tiblitch's Twin Peaks. <laughs> and if you and if you would like to support the ongoing and ulti-human struggle to achieve <laughs> some kind of knowledge about, about culture, about theory, about ideas, and most importantly, about the political value of just watching horror movies with your friends, then please do think about supporting this show through patreon.com slash horrorvanguard. That was that was honestly one of the best uh, Patreon plugs we've ever had on the show. That was so smooth. We can't do it without you. Like simple as. And if you like what we do uh, and would like to be a part of what we do, that's what the Patreon is for. Um, I know this has been this has been a kind of heavy start to this little retrospective episode. But can we talk about something that will lighten the mood? Can we talk about our absolute boy, Big Ed? <laughs> We we have to talk about uh, King of the Midwest gas stations, even though he lives in the Pacific Northwest. Yeah, I know. Big Ed. I, I love this bumbling oaf so much. <laughs> so what, what do we what do we make of Big Big Ed then? Because I, I think he's this this wonderful type of character where he's incredibly earnest, 
but he's not naive at all. He he knows of the world. You know, he has he has drank from the cup of sin. He knows pain. He's he's not childlike. But nevertheless, like he has like this pure heart of gold. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 kind of like it's a very it's a very endearing sort of characterization in lots of ways. Um like he's the most like the whole point is that him and Cooper go undercover at One Eye Jacks, and he's the most mm-hmm. conspicuous, inconspicuous man you can possibly right. imagine. And it it works so perfectly for his character because I mean, like, I, I think we've all met so many people where we're like, in the moment of meeting them, we're like, "Wow, this person is so odd. What's going on here?" And then days later, we've entirely days or maybe even minutes later, we've entirely forgotten about them. Which is exactly the purpose of his undercover mission. I I I love Big Ed. He's like this very kind of like civic-hearted, civic-minded person, um, but also someone who is. There's an interesting contradiction because he's essentially trying to support institutions, which at the same time make him deeply unhappy. <laughs> yeah, so I think we should talk about marriage. Yes. Uh, now that we're talking about Big Ed, uh, because it, 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 again, like episode episode seven is incredibly heavy. You know, like it's even kind of subtly, like I don't know. I've always thought the last evening as a title was a kind of a subtle nod to the Last Supper. Uh. Like this is there, there. This is a this is an apocalyptic episode, right? A, a horrible, a horrible knowledge bursts onto the scene in this final episode here. And we learned that nothing was ever the way we thought it was. And this this includes, like, prior to this, you know, Big Ed, Big Ed and his gas farm. He's he's in love. He's in love with um, Norma. You know, he's in, he's in love with the woman who runs a diner who is unfortunately married to a violent criminal. And he's married to Nadine, right? They're, they're star-crossed. But, like, in this episode, like... You know, so Nadine has been trying to make silent curtains, curtains you can open and close <laughs> silently, which I suppose I suppose that's a quality of life improvement um, as a uh, podcaster. Sure. I would like quieter stuff. Why not? Oh, uh, what an amazing what an amazing detail. I love this show <laughs> so, so much. But but like so so we get uh, we, we, you know, uh Tra- tragically like Nadine attempts to patent her silent drape runners and fails right um and and Nadine is in a very delicate state and that is too much for her to bear and she tries to take her own life um and Ed saves her right like and I think we kind of this episode it's a lot because you know we get we get something similar happening later in the episode um when the mill's burning down and uh Pete's wife is in there right like this this woman who's been cheating on him scheming against him belittling him degrading him like the the entire run of the show and and Pete is another one of those characters who very much like Ed he's he's kind of oafen and bumbling and humble and, and like the mill's burning down and his wife's in there and and he's like she's still my wife you know like yeah his his commitment to this supersedes the damage that's being done to him and and i think like this final episode does have an interesting discourse on like these commitments to things greater than ourselves as individuals 
Yeah, absolutely. This idea of like, what does it mean to be in partnership? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Because that's the whole question, right? There's, um, uh, this is, this is the whole idea of like, uh, and this is going to come up in season two with uh, Cooper's partner. Um, oh, yeah. So like, this is, is, is marriage the best or only form of partnership that the social life allows for and recognizes as having some kind of like, uh, validity, uh, probably. Uh, is it the best one? No, but is it the one that's most recognized as having validity? Yes. And the whole point mm-hmm. is uh, explorations of the ways in which people kind of find partnership and find connection in in ways that run often. W- there's a kind of friction within these kind of normative marriage arrangements because uh, H- Hank and Nadine are, are like uh, Ed and Nadine are often like deeply unhappy, like pay- or painfully unhappy mm-hmm. uh, with this kind of like separation. But like within that, within that kind of like new social formations, new modes of connection, new, new understandings of partnership emerge in the ambiguities and slippages uh, in our sense of what being a partner really means. Oh, completely. I, I could not agree with that more. And I think what this is really laying bare is that, at least in, in the context of like Ed, Nadine, Hank, everybody, Pete, it, it, we're seeing that like marriage when necessarily coupled to to these negative societal forces, right, becomes kind of beholden to them. Right, like Nadine can't get the care she needs, so Ed has to stay there, or God knows what's going to happen to Nadine. And could Ed ever live with himself in the event of that? You know, Hank Hank is abusive and cruel and manipulative, and he has trapped his wife in that because he needs her to help him stay out of the prison system. Yeah, right. Like the, the this kind of like vicious net weaves around these characters and we see what they want and what they need and who they really care for and how they're kept apart through these kind of material social means yeah precisely precisely and the whole challenge is like emerging new forms of relationship um mm-hmm. i actually think that brings up a really good point that we could jump onto which is talking about some classic gothic masculinity in this last episode. Uh, we've got Leo, we got Hank, we got Bobby, uh, and of course we've got Andy, and we're going to have to talk about Andy too. Um, but where would you like to begin? So I, I think we should begin where a lot of discussions of uh, David Lynch should naturally start, and that's with Charlotte Bronte. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yeah, 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 100%. Because <laughs> why not? Why not? Sure, of course. And well, like, so we, we have like, because I keep thinking about Rochester with, with all of our masculine tyrants in season one of two, Twin Peaks, right? Like I keep thinking of Jane Eyre and, 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 and wounded masculinity and fire, both consuming and liberating the feminine in these texts. Both, both as like an embodied gendered state and as kind of like a larger metaphysical concept in the text itself. And, and we see that play out so well with, with Hank and Bobby um, and Leo, right? Like, like all of them being taken down a, a peg in a certain way. All of them being wounded and kind of like losing a part of their grip 
the, their kind of like tyrannical grasp on the world around them. Yeah, what I mean, your uh, I mean, Hank, Hank, you know, being paid off by uh, uh, Josie Packard, then uh, <laughs> killing Catherine Martel, uh, mm-hmm. Leo trying to kill Bobby. Uh, like, I mean, Leo's Leo's anxiety is like the classic violence of the cuckolded husband, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, which again, super classic gothic anxiety. Uh, gothic anxiety. Uh, there's Deeply. there's there's someone in your someone in your house or in your bed that doesn't belong there, um, because it, de- it again it destabilizes all of these kind of like normative institutions, um. Yeah, it's 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 a confl- it's a conflagration right at the end of all things where mm-hmm. like uh you you end up with all of these kind of like wounded and wounding men. Yes. Um I, I think that brings up Andy that we should we should talk about Andy as well. Yes, we have to talk about Andy. Uh, I think the only our good our good gentle boy <laughs> our our pal. I, I think the only the only other thing I'd tack on to that before jumping into Andy is that with patriarchy, there is no top. There yeah. is no patriarch, right? There is no one at the height of that pyramid because it's a systemic. The system itself is at the top of the pyramid. And, and, we, and we see this. Bobby is subordinated to Leo. Leo is subordinated to Hank. Hank is subordinated to, um, uh, oh my God, Audrey Horn's dad. Audrey Horn's dad is subordinated to Bob from the lodge because he's the one who set this, this devastating conflagration in motion. You know, there there is always a patriarch above, right? Any attempt to game the system is in and of itself gamed by the system. But Andy, Andy, I think, gives us a unique counterpose to this. So here yeah. in our here in our final episode, Andy, uh, we we had this set up earlier, right? Like Andy fumbles his gun because he doesn't know how to use it right, drops it, and a shot fires off, which scares away the bad guys before they can be caught. Right, like so, we see that he. Andy can't use his gun. Wink. Yeah. Audience s- wink. Sim- sim- symbolism. <laughs> Andy cannot use the phallic object, which shoots bullets that fundamentally alter the course of life for anything they contact. Um, but what I, what I find to be really interesting about this, and, and, and I can't wait to hear what you think, too, is that. I think the easy the easy reading here is because so Andy, Andy, in this last episode, Quick draws his six gun and shoots a man and to to save his friend just just in, on reaction, right? Yeah, yeah. And I think the easy reading is to be like, oh well, Andy's a man now. You know, he's he's found his masculinity. He, his gun works. It's it's no longer you know limp. It's it's hard and shooting. But I, I think a more interesting reading is like we are we already know that Andrew, Andy is you know like his his gun works. Wink, wink. He, his girlfriend's pregnant. Right. Like, and sure, that's like maybe it's his, maybe it's not. But like, with, you know, like that question was answered for us already by the text of the show. Like, this is Andy discovering agency. This, this is Andy being able to stand up with his peer group as, as one of them, no longer like the goofy lackey. He's now part of the team. Well, I, I want to, I want to offer a kind of maybe, uh, is it, is it not precisely the point that there is some truth in this basic hot take and actually, like to be a man is to be inculcated into the systems yes. of violence which patriarchy oh, yeah. upholds, right? Isn't that, isn't isn't the tragedy 
of Andy's character that in a way that kind of like reductionist reading is kind of correct. Right. He, he mm-hmm. like, you know, there, there is, there is an element to which, yeah, that's, is people go, Oh, he's, you know, him and Lucy are going to have a baby, but like, Oh no, he's become a man because he's murdered. And that's what, yep. be, that's what quote unquote being a man really means. Like, isn't like that, that's, that's a really kind of, it's, it's kind of framed in semi-triumphal or semi like, ha ha, he, he did it sort of ter- terms, but also there's something really deeply tragic about it. I, I think you're completely correct. And like, because when we look in, in Tra Andy as a character, like it, it is really about him becoming confident in himself for the first time. Right. Like, and, and him realizing that he wants things in this world and in order to get them, he has to pursue them. But like, what what do all the men around him do? They 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 congratulate him as as now a member of their violent fucking gang of cops, and then and then the very next thing they do is they encourage him to be like, oh, make a move on your girl, Andy. It's time. Like like they they one hundred percent. He is he is you know it's, it's a it's a blessing in blood. He's indoctrinated into this thing, and now the next step would presumably to you know do gendered violence right like that's kind of the setup right like lucy is cornered in this little coffee room with all the men standing around her and she knows she knows what is being discussed and lucy's no fool and so you're you're absolutely right it's it's a it's it's tragic for for both what it is and what what it could have been yeah absolutely absolutely um so should we should we discuss the final act of violence we discuss the final act of violence. Let's let's do it because there there's more than one shooting in this final episode. Let's talk about Cooper Cooper getting shot. Uh, so Cooper returns back to his hotel room, orders some room service. There's a note that's left that's been left there earlier by Audrey before he can read it. Uh, he gets told that Leo Johnson's been shot, and then all of a sudden. He opens the door to an unseen figure and is shot three times. Mm-hmm. What what do you think about this final scene? So like like I made the comment earlier that the, the title of this episode for me has always kind of hinted at The Last Supper. Right? You know, like Christ's final meal before the crucifixion. And like, I, I think this episode it's not a thematic one-to-one right like i don't know if there's a judas that that one could identify in this episode um without considerable textual wrangling um but what i find to be really interesting is that like a lot of the characters in this last episode die and rise again right either inside of this episode or in the coming season Dr. Jacoby's heart fails, right? Like the, the Jacoby we've gotten to know is a dead man in episode seven. Yeah. Someone new is coming. Cooper. Co- Cooper. Cooper's been knocking on the door of something greater, but the problem with knocking on the door of the divine is that somebody's going to answer eventually. And in Cooper's case, like he dies and has to be born again to become the Cooper we get to know in season two. Do you have... Um... I think I think maybe this is a good a good spot to kind of like start to wrap things up. Um, any final thoughts then? Any any like last impressions of this first season? What I really enjoy about the kind of arc of the first season of Twin Peaks is that 
this is a cliffhanger ending. This is like 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 a wild cliffhanger ending. Characters are dying all over the place. Relationships are being shaken up. But if this would have been it, if this would have been the final piece of Twin Peaks, and I know we talked about this with the pilot, that I wouldn't have been satisfied if the pilot was the only thing we would have ever gotten. And I, I wouldn't have thought it was very good. But if we only ever would have had season one and the show would have become like a cult hit that never picked up a broader following, never got a season two, like just kind of languished, th- this would have been a phenomenal tale. Yes, absolutely. Um, and like, there are so many, there were so many moments of possibility, right? There are so many right here at the end. There's so much mm-hmm. that is has been established, but there's so much that still is kind of latent. There's still these kind of like not yet fully articulated uh, possibilities that are kind of bubbling under the surface. And it's such a good setup for a much bigger, much more ambitious, in some ways a lot more, I, I mean, I'm spoiling things a little, but in some ways a lot more kind of flawed season. Um, but also like trying to do a lot more interesting things Ooh, i think that's a great point to close out season one of our twin peaks retrospective on season one of twin peaks Mm, this has been this has been a phenomenal eight episodes yeah there we go i i cannot wait uh for season two to start while we discuss season two of Twin Peaks. What an interesting naming convention we have going for this. Thank you for (laughs) joining us, everyone, and we will see you for future Twin Peaks. We hope you've enjoyed the Dread Discourse. Until next week, stay spooky.